0: And thanks for listening.
1: At what point does planet Earth become inhospitable to life, let alone a flourishing human civilization? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats. I'm Greg Dalton. Underwriting for today's program was generously provided by the Susie Tompkins Buell Foundation. Scientists must be exaggerating when they tell us that a few degrees of warming will make life on Earth nasty, brutish, and short, right?
0: It is definitely a possibility, scientifically speaking, that large parts of the world could be uninhabitable if climate change continues unchecked beyond this century.
1: That's Katherine Hayhoe, an atmospheric scientist at Texas Tech University reacting to the title of a new book called The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. The author is David Wallace Wells, deputy editor at New York Magazine and our first guest on today's program. Catherine Hayhoe will also join the conversation later in the show. We start with some of the positive things David sees emerging amidst the climate crisis.
2: You know, the last six months have been, for me, exhilarating in terms of how much political progress has been made on climate. I think um, in the U.S., we've got the Sunrise Movement leading to the Green New Deal proposals. We have a kind of arms race unfolding among presidential candidates competing to be mm. the most ambitious on climate um, from a domestic perspective. I think that was basically unthinkable um, a few years ago, maybe even a few months ago. And the same is happening abroad in, you know, in the UK with Extinction Rebellion um, and the Parliament just declared a climate emergency in England, um, published a report showing how they might get to zero emissions by 2050 which may be a little slower than would be optimal, but is still much, much more ambitious than anything that had been talked about seriously by the government before. And across um, the EU with the Greta Thunberg's climate strike, we're seeing again, just huge, huge political movement. And I'm a newbie in this area. I've only been writing about it for a few years. But if you had told me just a couple of years ago that um, we'd be where we are now, seeing as much movement and as much progress as we've seen, I wouldn't have believed you. I thought that our politics were inert on this subject. I think they're probably moving too slowly given the state of the crisis, but at the same time, much faster than anybody could have predicted or I think anticipated until quite recently, which is really actually great.
1: It is really exciting. I'm, I'm, for those of us who've been around a while, I'm an old guy. Um, I'm having a little bit of deja vu from 2007, 2008 mm-hmm. around Al Gore's movie, Copenhagen, the election of Obama. There was a similar kind of feeling of, of, of movement that that ended in disappointment. Let's see if uh, this one can end differently. I'd like to ask you, how did fear move you out of climate complacency?
2: Well, I've. I think the the question sort of answers itself. I mean, The more I learned about the science, the deeper I got into it, um, which was really kind of over the course of 2016, um, the more scared I was. And that meant the more engaged I was in the urgency of the problem and the crisis. And from where I sat as a journalist, the importance of telling that story so that other people had the same reaction, had the same response. Um, I was, you know, I'm 36 years old. I was raised mostly in the 90s. I came of age in the 90s. I had a kind of very end of history perspective on the future. I thought, you know, I knew that markets were imperfect and globalization was imperfect. And, you know, um, the future was not going to be endless bounty for everyone on Earth. If but I also felt that we could probably count on it getting better. Um, And I thought that climate change was going to be part of that story, that um, it was an issue, it was a major issue, but also one that was within our power to address and control and that probably the leaders that we had would be responsible enough to take care of it. Um, I also felt that the story was a long one. I had sort of been led to believe, like I think a lot of us, that climate change was a really slow moving phenomenon and that meant that we didn't need to take dramatic action quickly we could develop our way out of the problem we could invent our way out of the problem when i realized just a year or two ago that you know half of all of the emissions that we've put into the atmosphere in the entire history of humanity have been put into that atmosphere in the last 30 years that really really opened my eyes it made me think this is not something unfolding in the life that will unfold in the lifetime of my grandchildren. It's something that's unfolding in my lifetime. In fact, has already unfolded in my lifetime. When I was born, the planet's climate was relatively stable. Scientists were worried about the long term, but in the near term, things were okay. We're now at a situation where we're basically face to face with um, real climate catastrophe, and that is because of what's been done just in 30 years. Um, The next 30 are promised. They promise to be just as consequential. And we could in those 30 years choose to take a path that produces some incredibly terrifying, depressing, punishing climate impacts or one that allows us to avoid at least most of those impacts and secure a kind of more fulfilling and prosperous and just future for ourselves and our children. And the scale of that story remains astonishing and kind of invigorating to me as a storyteller. It's an epic saga. It's the kind of thing that we only used to see in mythology and theology. We really do have the fate of the world and the species in our hands. And each of us who's alive today is a protagonist in that story, making choices, political and otherwise, that are going to determine that future. That's just incredible drama um, and so in addition to fear I was sort of woken up by the sense of that scale of that story and as a storyteller the need to share that sense of drama with you know, any reader who would have me, basically.
1: So we, we live in an age of hyper speed and hyper scale. We're here in, in Silicon Valley and, and things have happened dramatically, you know, in, in one generation, most people in the world can have in their hands, you know, most of the knowledge accumulated by humankind, you know, in all times. And just think about that. And that's really speed. And we embrace that. Yet that's the speed and scale of climate. Somehow it, that's really hard for us to grasp.
2: Like- well, I think they may be related because um, some of the trajectories of technology have taught us that change can happen very quickly. um, And that, you know, especially if you have a lot of faith in the technological solutions to climate change, you can think, oh, these things will get figured out, they'll get sorted out down the line. You know, I think that that is, given the state of the crisis, really um, a problematic perspective. You know, the UN says that in order to avoid, safely avoid two degrees of warming, which most of the scientists in the world consider the threshold of catastrophe and island nations of the world call um, genocide, We'll need to have our emissions by 2030, which is basically a decade from now. The Secretary General says we need a global World War II mobilization effort against climate to achieve that, and that needs to start this year. Um, And when you think about all of the components that would go into such a solution, you know, the energy sector is one that we think about a lot. It's probably the easiest because thanks to the progress of renewables, we actually do have a ready-made alternative to our um, dirty energy sources. In much of the world, it's already cheaper than dirty energy, probably will be cheaper in all of the world soon. But some of the other sectors, for instance, infrastructure, industry, um, transportation, these are sectors that take quite a long time to rebuild. I mean, if we really want to zero out our emissions from infrastructure, that'll take quite a while. If we really want to zero out our emissions from airplane travel, we need to, first of all, invent a completely new kind of airplane, then build factories to produce them and then phase them into the fleets of our airlines. That's not something you can do in a year or two years. And so if we really need to achieve all of that in the next 12 years, I think counting on, you know, technological progress to solve the problem for us without real political intervention, um, I think is, you know, a bit delusional. It means that we're living in a bit of denial or complacency or, you know, somewhere in that problematic nexus.
1: Right. So your book is, is heavy duty, and you, you write that it's it's a synthesis, and it looks at kind of the, the second half of the of the bell curve, kind of the the, the uh, more damaging, perhaps less probable outcomes. How do you? sit with that and, and hold that darkness without getting sucked into it. Cause I've seen people like, I would say, you know, Jim Hansen spent so much time looking at dark models that he kind of got, he got pretty dark and and dour himself. You know, how do you prevent yourself from being consumed by the darkness that you're trying to share with us?
2: Yeah. I mean, part of it is living myself a bit in denial and in complacency and um, in compartmentalization. And I think probably that's going to be a human response to this kind of suffering um, no matter how much of it unfolds, which is, a a tragedy and something we should fight against. But I also think it's in ways kind of inevitable. But, you know, I also try to remember that um, as horrifying as some of these really awful climate impacts could be, you know, if we end up on the track we're on at the end of the century, we could have twice as much war as we have today. We could have agricultural yields that are half as bountiful as the ones that we have today trying to feed 50% more people. We could have a global GDP that's 30% smaller than it would be without climate change. It's an impact that's twice as deep as the Great Depression. It would be permanent. Um, All of those places in the world would be hit by six climate driven natural disasters at once. Um, Climate refugees in the hundreds of millions, perhaps in the billions, according to the UN. You know, those impacts are horrifying. They can sound and seem paralyzing. But I also try to remember that they are ultimately a reflection of our power over the climate, because the main thing that's driving climate change is human action. It's how much carbon we put into the atmosphere. We have our hands on those levers. If it is possible to get to that quite hellish four degree scenario that we're on track for, um, that is just a sign of how in control of the climate we are and therefore how much we could conceivably choose a different path should we want to. Um, Now, there are a lot of political obstacles, social obstacles, cultural obstacles. That would prevent us from making different choices rapidly and really avoiding all of those outcomes but i think we fall into a trap when we think of this story as being beyond our control something that's unfolding without our input the only thing that's actually driving it is our input and um that leads us to some complicated questions about who we are and what our inputs are and um, who's making these decisions and um you know again those are really complicated questions but pulling back and adapting a kind of Global perspective, um, if we find ourselves living in a climate dystopia, it will be be because of human action. And to me, that's an argument for more action in the other direction now. And ultimately, it's a kind of perversely empowering perspective.
1: Christiana Figueres, who is the lead negotiator for the uh, Paris Climate Accord, was here uh, last year. And she says, you know, change begins within all change begins with self. Uh, And so I'd like to hear your thoughts on that, because that leads to this question of, you know, what can I do? You know, change myself. But then I might say, well, individual change is trivial and perhaps
2: distracting. Yeah, I mean, my feeling about this is um, maybe not not entirely popular, but um, my feeling is that, you know, people who want to reduce their own carbon footprints should um, it's valuable in the sense of advertising to other people that you can live a fulfilling, prosperous, modern life and still be responsible. It's also helpful in terms of inspiring policy action. But ultimately, the scale of the challenge is just so much bigger than anything we can possibly achieve through individual action. And, you know, we think about diet, which is one portion of the carbon problem. Um, There's a lot of energy these days around people going vegan, eating less red meat for the sake of um, reducing carbon emissions. And I think that's valuable. But if we really, truly need to get to zero emissions, perhaps as soon as 2050, which is what the U.N. says, maybe even sooner than that, I just don't think that we'll be able to get there through a global veganism movement. I think that whatever people like you and I do, whatever Everyone in this room does whatever even all Americans do over the next couple of decades. Um, The world is a really big place, and I don't think we're going to be able to compel every single one of the eight billion people on the planet to give up animal proteins for the sake of climate. I think that means that what we need to do is engineer some policy solutions that could make it possible for us to continue eating in the ways that we would like to without imposing a carbon um, cost on the future. And for me, you know, this is a small scale study or a set of small scale studies. But there's a lot of hope in the fact that um, researchers have found that if you feed cattle, a small amount of seaweed, their methane emissions could go down by as much as 95 or 99 percent, which would um, eliminate not entirely, but mostly eliminate the carbon problem of beef. Um, we could conceivably legislate that they'd be required to do that. And the same holds true for air travel, which we hear a lot about um, in places like San Francisco, or a place like the US. If everyone we know, if everyone in the entire U.S. vowed to never take a plane again, which is quite unlikely. But even if that happened, there'd be hundreds of millions of people elsewhere in the world who are going to be eager to continue flying. And to me, what that means is that we need, as I said earlier, a completely um, new set of new kind of airplanes with either electric planes or zero flying on zero carbon fuel that requires R&D money, probably such enormous amounts of it that it would have to be public. And it will also require governments to require manufacturers make these kinds of planes rather than the old kinds of planes and that airlines put them into service quite quickly. I think that at every in every sector, in every area, the problem is so large and so complicated that We can't hope to address it adequately through individual action, even though individual action can be a kind of useful, motivating, mobilizing way station on the way to policy change. But ultimately, for me, it's all about politics. It has to be. That's how big the problem is.
1: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about how parts of Earth may become uninhabitable. Coming up, more with author David Wallace-Wells and Katherine Hayhoe on how writers and storytellers can supplement the work of climate scientists like her by offering a positive vision of the future.
0: When you look at something that's better than what we have today, you can't hold people back from moving in that direction. That's what we're missing here is how the future could be better than today.
1: That's up next when Climate One continues. You're
0: listening to Climate One, so you realize that it's time to pull every lever we have to solve the climate crisis. Unfortunately, it's easy to overlook the impact that our investments have on the environment. Many investment funds support companies that cause harm to people and the planet. But it doesn't have to be that way. Change Finance offers investments that are fossil fuel free and align with your values without sacrificing returns. Go to change-finance.net slash climate to learn more and start investing today. Change Finance is a registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell any product.
1: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about life after global warming with David Wallace-Wells, deputy editor at New York Magazine and author of The Uninhabitable Earth. I asked Wallace-Wells about the gaps he sees in media coverage of climate change, especially when it comes to rising seas.
2: When I started writing about climate, I really thought that there was sort of three kind of public misperceptions um, held at least by people like me. And by that, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a lifelong New Yorker. Um, and I felt, you know, because I lived in an urban fortress like that, that I was somehow out living outside the force of nature. And while I worried about climate change, I thought it would hit elsewhere. It would hit populations elsewhere. And in some way that living in the modern world at all, but especially in a urban environment like I was, meant that we had sort of exited or conquered um, the forces of nature. And, you know, the three main misperceptions, I sort of already talked about the first one, um, which was about speed, that climate change is happening much faster than we all understood. The second one was, as you say, about um, scope. And, you know, we heard so much about sea level rise and Arctic ice melt over the last few decades, in part because in the long term, it probably is the most dramatic climate impact. But it unfolds over centuries, which means over the next few decades, we're likely to be more impacted by many, many other um, areas. So, I mentioned the economic impacts, the impact on conflict. Conflict also gets worse at the level of individuals. So, you have higher rates of rape and murder, um, domestic assault when it's hotter out. But the agricultural yields, their public health concerns. We're likely to see mosquitoes that used to only fly in the tropics flying as far north as the Arctic Circle relatively soon, which is astonishing. They'll be carrying all those diseases all around the world. Um, wildfire, extreme weather, you know, hurricanes in the Caribbean, one after the other. We've already seen in Houston, three 500 year storms in three years. Storms are supposed to hit once every 500 years, um, which tells you we're really in a we're really living in an unprecedented climate situation. But when you look at each of these areas, each of these impacts, you see that this is not a story that could be compartmentalized at all. It's not a matter of living a little bit farther from the coast and letting some of that land go under the ocean over the course of centuries, no matter where you are, even if you're an extremely wealthy part of an extremely wealthy country very far from the ocean, you're still going to be impacted in some way. And I think that that's really profoundly important for us all to understand and appreciate, you know, climate change punishes unequally. So the global south, which is already suffering intensely from climate change, will be suffering considerably more in the decades ahead. But it also does punish universally and that there won't be any place on the planet if we let this course continue that will be unaffected. And I think really, ultimately, that calls us much more directly to action. I hope that it also makes us empathize with those elsewhere in the world who are suffering more. But to the extent that we are all also self-interested creatures, I think it's important to understand that everyone's own lives and the lives of those they love will be impacted by these forces if we don't change course. And that's what makes it such a global, all encompassing all-impacting story.
1: David, one interesting thing about your path is that a lot of people think that a connection to nature is essential, vital to then be aware of it and then want to preserve it. But that's not the case with you. Tell us about your relationship with
2: Yeah, them. I mean, I, I, I think uh, the natural world is beautiful. I'm moved by like the David Attenborough documentaries um, and especially the new ones, which have such incredible photography. But, you know, as I said earlier, I'm a lifelong New Yorker. And honestly, I think I'm probably going to be living in cities my whole life. And while I sometimes travel and into places that are um, a little less dense and a little less totally paved over and man-made than New York. I also honestly feel that if I could trade um, the beauty of the natural world for the stability and prosperity and security of future human life, I would actually take that trade um, to me. I'm an unusual person on the environmental left in this way because I'm I'm really primarily and almost um, exclusively concerned about the fate of humans. And I think ecosystem collapse is problematic and worrisome largely because of how it will impact human life. I think it's also tragic, but I'm not moved by those tragedies in the same way that many others um, who are fighting this fight are but Unfortunately, we can't continue to live the way that we live or have the expectations for the future that we've had over the last few decades um, unless we quite dramatically change course um, with our carbon. And that to me is um, the most important pressing fact. You know, when I read about 60% of vertebrate mammals have already died since 1970, according to the World Wildlife Foundation or the huge insect die off that um, entomologists have been documenting over the last few years. Those things concern me primarily because of how they impact human life. Um, And I know that there are others who feel differently, but I think that the um, the challenge ahead of us is is so intense. You know, the word existential gets thrown around a lot. um, And I don't think it's the case that the human species is going to face extinction anytime soon. But the conditions of our existence are going to be so profoundly transformed by these forces that I think we owe it to ourselves to focus on the threat to humans um, as much as we can, rather than being distracted by the plight of of others. Now, if we really solve the problem, we'll also be securing the lives of all the other species on the planet to the extent that isn't possible. But um, personally, I'm motivated more by the plight of humans and the threat to future human life than I am by, you know, the natural world or all those other creatures living in it.
1: We're talking with David Wallace Wells, deputy editor of New York magazine and author of the new book, The Uninhabitable Earth Life After Warming. I'm Greg Dalton. Now we're going to bring in Catherine Hayhoe, who's joining us from Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas. This is the first time we've included a guest remotely on the show. Catherine, welcome.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So what's your take on the uninhabitable Earth? You know, did it exaggerate the science? Is the title an exaggeration?
0: (laughs) It is it is definitely a possibility, scientifically speaking, that large parts of the world could be uninhabitable if climate change continues unchecked beyond this century. But the most important message, I think, is one that David has already highlighted, and that is the fact that our choices make the world of difference. The planet really is on our hands. And when we look to the future, and my, my own work looks at future projections, the difference between a one and a half, a two degree world, a four degree world, The biggest differences we see are in the choices that we make.
1: And can an individual make choices that are that are meaningful? David has said that, you know, the idea that we're going to recycle our way out of this or I'll go vegan. Is that just kind of delusional or can that have some kind of accumulated impact?
0: I appreciate his honesty because so often we are presented with, oh, if everybody did X, that would fix the problem. And we know as scientists that that is not true. There is no one silver bullet that will fix this whole problem. And in fact, even if everyone in the United States, in North America, who cared about this, went to a carbon neutral lifestyle, if they could afford to do so, that still wouldn't even make more than a tiny, tiny dent in the overall magnitude of the problem. So that's why when people ask me, what's the most important thing we can do? And they expect me to say, change your light bulbs, recycle, or go vegan. I say, the most important thing we can do is talk about it. Because public opinion data shows that most of us agree that this is a real problem. It will affect future generations plants and animals, people in developing countries, but we don't think it matters to us. And so that's why having this conversation is so important because if we don't care, why would we act? Um, and if we don't talk about it, why would we care?
1: And David, you said earlier that, that, that fear really uh, you know, motivated you. My experience is that fear can sometimes turn people away, either paralyze them or turn them away. Have you had people say to you, You're bumming people out. David, just lighten up a little bit because people can't handle how heavy it is.
2: Well, the book grew out of an article that I wrote a few years ago, which was more focused on real worst case scenarios. And I had certainly had some of that response when that article was published. The response to the book, I'd, I'd say, has actually been quite, positive even among scientists who don't take quite as alarmist a perspective in their public um, talking about the issue as I as I do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's in part because the conversation has really changed even in these two years since I originally published that article and and since the book was published. I mean, the real turning point, I think, was this UN report from last October, which looked at the difference between 1.5 degrees and two degrees and was not based on new science. You know, anybody who was following it knew everything that was collated in there but did represent a rhetorical shift in the presentation of that science and was a much stronger more clear and urgent call to arms from scientists than any equivalent body had issued before and you know i think at the time there were probably even some scientists who thought that that might have been a little you know pushing things a little too far but if you look at the last six months as i was we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation I think the response has been incredible. Um, And I don't think that it's a coincidence that in the six months or nine months now since that report was first issued, we've had a kind of unprecedented mobilization. Um, I think that the science is really alarming. You don't need to um, misrepresent it to scare people. But the responsible response to scary science is to um, try to take action. And I think that, um, you know, I'm sure there are people who reading my book or reading news coverage of that IPCC report or reading other writers who are sort of on the more alarmist end of the spectrum do fall into despair. I'm sure there are people like that. But when I look out on the world, I see so many more people who are living too complacently on the issue than I do people who are Mm -hmm. living too much in fear and in despair about it. And when I look at the recent past these last six months, I think, wow, there's really an opportunity to shake people out of that complacency in part with some straight talk. And, you know, I don't think that fear mongering is the only way to tell this story, especially because I do think that we as Catherine said, as I said earlier, we hold this story, you know, we are the authors of this story. We can write it differently. And so I think that it's important to always keep that in mind and always, you know, not want to foreclose any possibility or say that anything is inevitable. But at the same time, we know from the history of environmental advocacy that fear can motivate people. We know that from our recent politics. And, you know, the UN called for World War Two style mobilization. We know from the history of World War Two that um, fear and alarm can produce a really mighty response, which is Unfortunately what we need um, for climate right now
1: the difference though with this and uh, World War II, Catherine Hayhoe is we are all complicit There's no I mean if North Korea was causing climate change we would mobilize and go after it, but uh, it's more diffuse You know and we're, we're conflicted and complicit in this case So your thought of is often rightly so as a very optimistic scientific communicator How do you deal with that fear but t- but keep it real and so you don't bum people out?
0: well as a scientist I know exactly what David's talking about because Every new scientific study that comes out shows that climate is changing faster to a greater extent than we thought almost I mean whether it's the fact that sea levels rising faster glaciers are melting faster. um, The new round of global climate models, we use have higher sensitivity showing greater change by the end of the century that's one of our latest results, it just isn't good news. Um, and so the way I look at it is, what we need for the future is rational hope. Maybe David would, would rephrase that as rational fear. Uh, but but we, need, we need our emotions that are informed by an awareness of how serious the problem is. Because it is profoundly serious. It's not about saving the planet. The planet itself will survive. It's about every living thing on this planet, including ourselves. Uh, but balancing that with what we can do about it. Because just telling people how scary something is, Without directly informing us of the role that our choices play in whether that future rolls out or not and what we can do both individually and collectively, I think is the key.
1: So Al Gore's first film, An Inconvenient Truth, was criticized for kind of, you know, uh, informing and alarming, but not giving people enough of a handle for solutions. Catherine Hayhoe, do you think that an uninhabitable earth should have had more of a ramp for more of the solutions part, kind of like Al Gore's first film?
0: Well, so Al Gore's second film and his second book did exactly that. It got directly into solutions. So I'd like to see this, the second book in David's series yeah. <laughs> uh, talk more perhaps about, <laughs> about about what is already happening around the world, but what the future might look like. Because when I look to the future, what I feel like we're missing at this point is, we're not missing the apocalyptic vision of the future, I think we've, we've got that in spades, and what David's book does is it takes what we've been saying in scientific assessments for years and even decades, and it rephrases it in a way that's hopefully more accessible for people to understand how bad this could be, but then we also need, and more importantly now, we need a positive vision of the future because if we don't have that positive vision of the future, we have no goal to aim towards. World War II, they absolutely had a positive vision of the future, you know, a free world that was not ruled by the Nazis. And so we're missing that positive vision and we need our creative talents to give that to us. We scientists are terrible at positive visions of the future. All we're good at is diagnosing the problem in greater and greater detail. We need others to help us see what that future looks like, because when you look at something that's better than what we have today, you can't hold people back from moving in that direction. That's what we're missing here, is how the future could be better than today.
1: David, your thoughts your next book? Going to go
2: light a <laughs> Well, i mean i think that there you know i would i think that um we knew we do need that vision and i think that we don't yet have a collectively have a clear picture of it i totally agree i do think that some of the storytelling coming out of the green new deal advocacy has done some of that i think that paul hawken has done um some of that um and in general I'm just excited by the plethora of different people taking different approaches to this problem right now. I mean, in addition to the political movement that we're seeing, we're also just seeing a lot more storytelling about it than we did a few years ago. And I think, you know, whereas 10 years ago you could say about to Al Gore, you didn't do enough X. Now there are so many people telling stories that it's not really on one person or one message um, to deliver every aspect of the story. Personally, the part of my book that I found most interesting to write was, um, not the stuff about science, but about the way that some of this filters into what I think of as the kind of humanities of climate change, how it might change our politics and our culture, our relationship to technology and economics. And, um, you know, I'm probably that's the direction that I'll be moving in and writing about these issues. But I certainly applaud others who are writing um, more directly about, you know, a positive vision of the future and how to get there. But beyond all that, beyond the storytelling, I would say, you know, we have basically the tools that we need now. What we lack is the political will to put them into place. Now, in a certain way, that's a little bit of a misleading or cop out statement because we have the tools we need to end a lot of problems in this world. Global poverty and the, you know, injustices enacted against women and, you know, ethnic cleanse. I mean, there are many, many problems in the world that theoretically we have the tools to address and we don't deploy them. But climate change is another one of those issues. Energy is probably the the most obvious one, because in relatively short order, renewables will be cheaper in all of the world than they are than dirty energy. But in a lot of other sectors, too, um, we can see what needs to be done. We just need to rally people to do it. I think having a positive vision is part of that rallying cry. But it's actually less of an imaginative leap than it might have been even a decade ago when an inconvenient truth came out, for instance, you know, renewables simply were not competitive market-wise with dirty energy. And that's totally different than uh, now than it was 10 years ago. So we're already living in a world that the path that we need to take may be a little clearer than it was just a few years ago. Um, although I agree with Catherine wholeheartedly that we need more people saying that <laughs> so that people understand that we can make a fulfilling, prosperous future for ourselves. You know, we have those tools now, we just need to make it happen.
1: You're listening to a conversation about the future of life on Earth. This is Climate One. Coming up, more from David Wallace-Wells and Katherine Hayhoe on telling climate stories that matter. Talking
0: about it and connecting the dots between who we already are, what we already care about, and how climate change affects that very thing that forms the basis of our identity is so important to getting us all on board to do what we can to save ourselves.
1: That's up next, when Climate One continues. This is Climate One, I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about avoiding climate catastrophe with David Wallace-Wells, author of The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming, and Katherine Hayhoe, director of the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University. Recent fires and floods have begun to drive home how climate change can affect people now, where they live and work. I asked David how higher average temperatures could affect economic productivity and basic human well-being.
2: It's sort of um, among the more speculative climate science that I write about in the book, but um, it's done by a group of economists actually in the Bay Area, some at um, Stanford and some some at Berkeley. And in general, um, there's a, a quite clear correlation between um, not just economic productivity and temperature, but also cognitive performance and temperature. Um, generally speaking, um, they estimate that there will be some countries in the world that benefit from some additional warming um, on these metrics, but others that suffer, including some that suffer quite dramatically. It was just a, um, a paper out a few weeks ago um, by, um, by a few of them showing that um, many of the nations of the developing world are already suffering economically quite intensely from warming. Um, This one paper suggested that they may have lost as much as 35% of their potential GDP growth over the last few decades because of warming forces. And, you know, a lot of these estimates are, you know, they're they're vague estimates and perhaps not precisely right. They'll probably be revised in in the years ahead. But to give you a sense of the global picture, um, I think it's really critical to understand that um, warming affects everything. It changes everything about the way we live and the way that we work. And if climate conditions get more punishing, that will be reflected in every measure of human well-being and fulfillment and um, including the economic ones. You know, it just goes back to what I was saying earlier about it being an all encompassing, all touching threat. Um, You know, when you learn about the effects of air pollution on the development of children, even in utero, or even of the temperature outside of of the development of children in utero, you know, the effects uh, of temperature on mental illness rates. And I mean, it's it's really incredible how you can find at least correlations almost everywhere you look, no matter where in the modern world you're looking, you'll see some possible damaging effects from climate change um, if things continue to get warmer. And among other things, it's just a reminder that we are all already living in the theater of climate change. Um, we've exited the climate conditions that presided for all of human history. And so all of the things that we take for granted as features of not just modern human life, but really human life defined very broadly um, were the result of those conditions which no longer preside. It's almost as though we've landed on an entirely different planet with a different set of conditions and we're trying to figure out how to live. What of our patterns of behavior can endure and which can't?
1: Yeah, reminds me of Bill McKibben's book, Earth with two A's, you know, the, the, it's a new, entirely new planet now. Catherine Hayhoe, a lot there. What do we know about the science of heat, and are people going to start moving out of Lubbock, Texas?
0: <laughs> I say that I previewed global warming by moving to Texas, and I'll gradually end up back in Canada again. Uh, I think that another report that came out this past year that really helped change the dialogue, especially in the U.S., was the National Climate Assessment. What that does is it takes every sector, so agriculture, ecosystems, water, energy, transportation, even security, and it talks about how climate change is already and will in the future affect those sectors, and also looks at every region in the U.S. So it goes a long way to directly addressing the myth that David alluded to, which I believe is the most important and most dangerous myth that the largest number of people have bought into. And that is not the myth that you know science is optional or you can choose whether to believe it or not, although that certainly is a myth we see today in headlines. Um, the myth that most of us have bought into is the myth that it doesn't matter to me. And of course, the reality is climate change matters to every single one of us if we're a human living on this planet. Because it isn't just an environmental issue as if somehow you know, humans could exist floating in space on their own without a planet to live on. Um, it's a health issue. Uh, Temperature affects our health, temperature affects our nutrition, our crops, CO2 levels even affect our brain function. We're affected right now, most of all, by the way that climate change is loading the dice against us. So we always have a chance of of rolling a pair of double sixes. That's a crazy wildfire, a strong hurricane, a record-breaking flood, a heat wave in the summer. But decade by decade, climate change is coming in and taking another one of those numbers off the dice and replacing it with a six and another six, and then all of a sudden we see double sevens start showing up. Like with the wildfires in California this past year, my own home province of Ontario is enduring unimaginable flood beyond what anybody has ever seen in their lifetime before, that's definitely a double seven. We're seeing double sevens around the world now, and they are impacting our infrastructure, our health, our safety, our water resources, our food and more. So climate change affects pretty much every aspect of our lives, to care about it, all we have to be is a human. Most of us are humans. um, And so that's why talking about it and connecting the dots between who we already are, what we already care about, and how climate change affects that very thing that forms the basis of our identity is so important to getting us all on board to do what we can to save
2: ourselves.
1: If you're just joining us, this is Climate One. We're talking with David Wallace-Wells, deputy editor of New York Magazine and author of the new book, The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming, and Catherine Hayhoe, professor and director of the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Catherine Hayhoe, you're known as, as a um, communicator to the evangelical community. There's been references made uh, to the uninhabitable w- earth, to the book of Revelation. So I'd like to hear you know, how you know this book would, might be received and this thinking if it goes to the rapture, you know, how is this book likely to be received in the communities of faith?
0: Well, interestingly, we have this this little series called Global Weirding on PBS, and our most popular episode is not what I anticipated. Our most popular episode is, what does the Bible say about climate change? That's the one that everybody wants to watch. And it addresses the popular myth, you know, if God is in control, then humans couldn't affect something as big as this planet. But probably the second most popular myth is, well, you know, if it's getting bad, it's okay, because God's going to push the eject button soon anyways. And to answer those types of objections, we have to go not to the science, we actually have to go to the place where people think it's coming from, which in this case would be the Bible. And when we do that, we see that there's a very strong emphasis on today, on not worrying about tomorrow, because we can't change it, but looking around today and seeing who is suffering today. Who's impoverished today? Who doesn't have enough food to eat today? What is happening today? And so emphasizing the fact that, as David pointed out, climate change is already affecting real people today. A recent study showed that climate change has enriched some of the richest and impoverished many of the poorest around the world already. Talking about the suffering that's being endured as supersized cyclones and hurricanes hit developing countries, as. What used to be the normal rainy season and dry season shift, causing drought and then flood. Talking about the real-life impacts today, I think, are a really important way to connect the dots between people's values, in that case, and what we can do today.
1: Right. it's so That that lived experience. David, you talk a little bit about how it's not a lack of information. It's not like more information, more facts getting out there. You use the word stories there. I think, I'd like you to think about stories and lived experience versus one more report, one more podcast, one more book, because we've done that for 30 years. It's only gotten us so far, but it's not getting the job done.
2: Yeah, well, I you know, I, I see... A whole variety of storytelling strategies including just dumping the data on people i mean personally i found swimming in that data really was a much more profound experience for me than if i just understood some top line summary about you know two degrees means x three degrees means y four degrees means z Um, understanding just how much research had gone into each of those projections and really as a result this may sound a little weird but just how much could be wrong in that science without sparing us some quite terrifying impacts was really quite profound to me. This is not a matter of three scientific studies that could be disproven. It's thousands being done by thousands of scientists. And, you know, surely some of them will not come precisely to pass. But even so, um, unless we dramatically change course, we have so much more research to say, you know, even if 30 percent of the science on climate is wrong, um, things are looking quite bleak. And that to me was quite powerful. But I think that the storytelling function is vital. I think that's one reason why Catherine's totally right, that we need to be telling the stories ourselves. I think for too long, we. Um, and I say we even though I was not really a part of this movement of this community until quite recently, but we had a very narrow idea of what it meant to tell a responsible or effective climate story. And those stories were only being told by a certain kind of person. But I think the, we need more stories told by more people, especially from more parts of the world um, to really motivate and mobilize, because the truth is. In California, we see the impacts of climate change now because of the wildfires. In the Gulf Coast, we're seeing it because of the storms. But the impacts in the equatorial band of the world are much, much more intense already. And those communities are seeing already whole ecological cultures that gave rise to whole civilizations really directly under threat. I mean, I think that's especially true in Bangladesh, um, somewhat to a lesser degree in parts of India. And, you know, when you realize that, you know, in as little as a few decades, you may not be able to go on pilgrimage to Mecca in Saudi Arabia because it'll just be too hot. I mean, that just changes the whole calculus of what it means to be a believing Muslim in the world. Um, And there are impacts like that everywhere you look, especially around the equatorial band. And the more that we pay attention to those stories, I think, first of all, the more we'll understand the scale and severity of of the threat. But also, I hope that it teaches us to regard the rest of the world with more empathy. Because, you know, when I think about the politics that we're um, living through now and building now, um, in part in response to this crisis and in part as an outgrowth of it. Um, unfortunately, I worry a lot that we may be retreating into self-interest and nativism, um, turning away from the needs of others around the world. And, you know, Catherine talks beautifully about our kind of common humanity. Um, I think that at the moment, too many people, especially in the West, are defining humanity in a kind of narrow way that allows us to overlook the suffering of all of those elsewhere in the world. And if we really want to come up with some kind of global solution, it requires I think, starting from a point of radical empathy and really believing that the fate and life of someone who's living in Bangladesh or Calcutta is just as important as the fate of someone living in Santa Rosa or paradise. Um, there are a lot of complicated questions about exactly how to manage a geopolitics built on that principle. But I think that we need to be um, doing everything we can to sustain those feelings of empathy and even grow them rather than retreating into narrow definitions of self-interest.
1: Catherine Hayhoe, you're nodding on, on that empathy point. The reality is, though, in a lot of climate communication, there's a lot of villainization of oil companies or certain political parties or certain countries. So talk to us about empathy and villainization as a communications on climate.
0: There's also a lot of villainization, obviously, of the messengers too, if you don't like what they have to say. So when when they get that talking, a lot on
1: Twitter, yes. <laughs>
0: yeah, just just a little bit, like a few times a day. Um, Wendy was talking, that actually reminds me of how I think about it. Um, people often say, well, you know, how do you how do you talk to people who who reject the science completely? And my answer to that often is, I can't, because even though they're only, you know, less than 10% of our population is truly dismissive. What they do, because climate change, because rejecting that issue is such a core part of their personal identity, they are not able to relate to somebody who's talking about climate change concerns as a fellow human. And so the common denominator that I see, which kind of marks somebody as are you a dismissive or are you somebody we can have a conversation with, is somebody who cannot treat someone else as a fellow human when they disagree with them on climate. But unfortunately, this is happening on a whole range of issues all around the world. And most of us are guilty of doing that at least in part ourselves and whatever our part, our pet issue is too. And at this time, we're seeing an, an increasing fragmentation of identity around the world, uh, an increase in identity politics at the very time when, as David said, we most need to be uniting over the concept of, of what we have in common truly is far more than what divides us. A number of years, I read a really interesting study that talked about how if, if we truly support democracy and we want um, democracy to continue in the future, climate change could pose one of the greatest threats to democracy because the more disasters happen, the more power people are willing to grant to a government, the more likelihood there is of a totalitarian state as uh, hunger, poverty, disease, lack of access to water and resources shortages increase. So so this really is an issue of the future of our civilization, the future of um, freedom, the future of our political system, uh, not the future of the planet, but the future of, again, every single one of us on this planet.
1: Catherine Hayhoe, you're doing a, a series on on PBS. Is, is that how's that doing? Is that going to you focusing on positive stories there? So you don't have PBS different business model, right? Uh, is it focusing more on positive news than the lead and bleed?
0: We're focusing more on questions that people have because I get a lot of questions, uh, many every single day. So we're trying to answer the questions people have so that they can. Um, there's a great need to feel like, well, I don't I want to understand this issue. I'm just one person. What difference can I make? Um, You know, what I hear that developing countries need fossil fuels too. Is that true? We can't deprive them of the same energy source we use. So answering these types of questions, but I, I agree with David. There has been a huge uptick in press and media coverage of climate change this last year. Max Boykoff at the University of Colorado tracks this. You can actually see the stats across various countries but television is lagging behind. And in fact, um, last year when somebody said to me, oh, you should really go on Chris Hayes show. I said, well, as a matter of fact, they've invited me multiple times and every single time they've canceled on me at the last minute, sometimes when I was in the studio with an earpiece in my ear on a weekend. So Chris actually chimed in, good for him. And he said, to be perfectly honest, climate change is a ratings killer. And so, unfortunately, we, we have this system where there's so much competitive news, sometimes 24-hour news, that people go with the ratings over what the really, truly important issues are. And that also contributes to the political polarization we experience today. There's, there's many reasons for that, but one of the biggest contributing factors is the fact that when we want the news today, we don't just turn on Walter Cronkite and everybody gets their news from the same source. We get it from customized sources that don't just offer news and facts that they think are important, they offer things that are titillating, things that make us go, oh, I want to keep watching, things that offer, you know, slanted perspectives or people arguing with each other. The news has turned into an industry and it has failed us all.
2: And Greg, one other thing I just want to mention that you raised is that there are these new business models and subscription models do offer a different kind of incentive structure. So I think one reason why The Times has been so aggressive in covering climate is because they're um, more focused on delivering to their subscribers um, the material that those subscribers want intensely rather than trying to reach the broadest audience at once. And the same is true of Netflix. When you see the David Attenborough series um, on Netflix, I'm um, you know, they don't release their their um, their Audience numbers, but from my just anecdotal experience, it's been a huge phenomenon over the last few months. And Netflix is in a, again, it, it's in, they're in a different position business wise than, say, NBC or CBS. Um, and that could be, you know, that could open up many new avenues.
1: David Wallace Wells, deputy editor at New York Magazine and author of The Uninhabitable Earth Life After Warming. We also heard from Catherine Hayhoe an atmospheric scientist at Texas Tech University, where she also directs the Climate Science Center. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.